Folks, for those of you who are listening, you are listening to The Vegetable Beat. It is a live weekly webcast and also a podcast for vegetable growers every Wednesday during the growing season, right on through September. It, we broadcast um, at 1130 Central and 1230 Eastern. Uh, my name is Ben Whirling. I'm your host today. I'm from Michigan State University. Um, and today we've got um, what we believe are... Um, Two of our MVP guests, Brad and Nathan, have been with us, we believe, four times for a quadrifecta. Um, <laughs> and um, we're going to be talking about pumpkins today. Um, Brad and Nathan were on in May um, ahead of the pumpkin season, or just as the planting was, was starting, talking about kind of what to think about. And now we're going to take a little bit of a look back, but also talk about how to maintain the pumpkins you're growing um, right on through harvest and, and, and marketing. Um, put, please put your pumpkin questions into the Zoom chat, or excuse me, the Zoom Q&A or the Facebook comments. Um, we'd like you to uh, give an opportunity for Brad and Nathan to um, answer your questions. And if you're looking for Michigan pesticide credits, put your name and email into the chat. Um, so, um, Brad and Nathan, one of the reasons that we like having you guys on, um, besides that you guys are just, you're fun to work with, is that you are both, you have two hats, you're growers and extension educators, which gives you a, a good perspective. Um, and so I kind of wanted to kind of zoom in on your own farms for a second, just ask, um, you know, how are pumpkins looking on your farm farms right now? And and Brad, why don't we start with you? How are pumpkins looking on your family farm? Yeah, considering the year, uh, we were very, very wet right at and right after planting. Uh, we did get them in June the 6th, uh, but had some flooded out areas in the, in the field. So those had to re be replanted about two weeks later. So within our field, not only are we concerned about a possible split set due to the high nighttime temperatures we're getting now and the cool nighttime temperatures we had two, three weeks ago. Um, now we're going to see some split harvest uh, just within the field itself because of having to piece in uh, the flooded out areas. But for the most part, the, the crop looks really good. Uh, we have not sprayed uh, any fungicides yet. We'll, uh, we try to hold that off until the uh, pressure really comes in. And uh, last night I was out and found the first powdery mildew lesion. So we will be, uh, if I was home today, <laughs> I'd be, be spraying, spraying tonight, but uh, I'm on my way to my hops field night up in Northwest Ohio. So I'm actually joining y'all from a bar in uh, parking lot of a bar in Dunkirk, Ohio, on my way to Bowling Green, Ohio. So, uh, um, but we are seeing some uh, powdery mildew uh, lesions out there and we will be getting pretty heavy on the uh, powdery mildew sprays. And then Dr. Sally Miller, our plant pathologist uh, here at Ohio State University, she, uh, she has diagnosed uh, downy in Ohio in, in uh, quite a few cucurbits. I don't know if she's actually diagnosed it in pumpkins in particular, but we do know down, downy's floating around. So we'll probably be hitting with some, uh, I'll probably be mixing some downy uh, mildew fungicides in with the powder mildew fungicides this weekend just to stay ahead of it. Got it. So interesting. Sounds like some weather related challenges and then, and then now the disease control programs just kicking in. Um, well, well, how are pumpkins looking on your farm, Nathan? 
Um, I think everything's looking um, looking pretty well. We had a little rain that kind of delayed us in uh, in our planting a little bit. We uh, we put in transplants and they didn't get in until around that Fourth of July weekend, which is maybe a week or so later than I want. So we're in the earlier part of fruit set, but most varieties and scouting around most varieties have at least a good uh, good first set of fruit on them. And and this time of year, and Brad, you could echo this is that. You know, you look at those plants and for a while you think it's like I have fruit. And then all of a sudden, you know, like five days later, you look out and there's like fruit. Every, you don't even know where that. I mean, they come <laughs> from. They just the, the plants just grow so rapidly at this point in the season. So, um, but no, uh, everything that's there looks good. Um, the crop looks good. Um, I like Brad. Uh, we haven't sprayed any fungicides yet. Um, certainly now is the time when I'm very vigilant for powdery mildew. Um and uh haven't seen anything on there yet but i'll probably depending on what i see may go ahead and put a spray out here this weekend just because usually by early august i figure my days are numbered and it's probably even if i didn't see it there's it's a good chance that it'll be out there soon so on the downy mildew front we haven't had any local sightings i did look on the uh um, on the map where they track different confirmations of downy mildew. And I did notice some in the Vincennes, Indiana, which would be just to the east of along our uh, eastern border of Illinois, which is a, a heavy melon growing area. And if, if I remember right, I want to say it may have been on a cucumber. I don't remember um, without glancing back what species that was on, but I've seen it a little bit down to the south of us. And if, but fortunately, if we stay in this hot, dry pattern and don't get into some cool weather, I think we'll be we'll be okay on the downy front at the moment. But that can all change with a uh, a weather front and and some changes in temperatures. But last year we had some downy that came in, but we had a real cool wet stretch that really just was the perfect conditions and and uh. and hit hit pretty hard but no overall everything looks good and um no crop looks looks very good so awesome um well i wanted to so you guys have mentioned a couple of things that maybe you've been thinking about or had questions about like um you've been thinking about downy mildew and powdery mildew and and split fruit sets um i wanted um I wanted to ask you because the other hat that you wear besides a grower is an extension agent. And so you get to talk with a lot of other growers. And I wondered if you could each kind of share one or two themes to pumpkin questions you've been getting this year. And Nathan, if it's all right, let's let's start with you. And uh, For me, as far as pumpkin questions, I would say a lot of what... Um, a lot of what I've had is a lot of, which is my nature, is a lot of weed management questions, especially earlier on, or guys that didn't get a herbicide down, and then what should we do, or how should I handle things? So that's that was early on quite a bit. We had some uh, uh, areas to the north and north and central part of our state had some excessive rainfall. You know, with talking, you know, eight ten inches plus over the course of a couple of days. So there was some concern about phytophthora uh, in those areas. And so I got a few trickle down questions because people heard there was some disease out. And I said, well, if you haven't gotten the excessive rains in a low lying area, you know, those pro those issues aren't probably as problematic. So I got a few of those questions. That's probably the 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 biggest things that I've I've gotten. And things have been at least for the last week or two have been a little more at bay and haven't had a lot of a lot of questions coming in, which at least leads me to hope that 
that the crop is is doing fairly well for for most areas. So, were were there any common um, on the weed front? You mentioned um, growers having some issues. Were there any common themes about things that could have been done differently, or um, part of it's weather related? But yeah, a lot of it's weather related. I think some of it was a mixed bag. I think the the biggest thing that I'll usually get a couple of every year is people that get things planted. They get a big rain and they don't get a pre-emergent herbicide on uh, or don't get it on before you start to get some small weeds emerging or they have it uh, or they get it on and they don't get rainfall to activate it. And so it breaks and they got some a certain species that's coming in and what can they do? So uh, so that's probably the biggest kind of theme or kind of within that. It kind of varies for us. Water hemp is still and other amaranthus uh, pigweed species is, are still our that's kind of our, our number one weed. Um, a lot of guys, uh, morning glory issues are common. We don't have a lot of real great options for that, but that's those are probably the two weeds I get the most questions on most commonly. Gotcha. Thank you, Nathan. Brad, I, I wanted to ask you too, What have there been any common themes as to the questions and answers you've been, they've been going back and forth? or Probably. The biggest thing is these uh, purchase orders coming in earlier. Um, usually, you know, they start wanting the uh, pumpkins into the warehouses on that September 1st, but now it's a week before. So folks are a little, whether they're going to get enough of that first early fruit set to get those first orders oh. in. And then uh, another problem is, uh, you know, is there going to be enough labor? We're have, down in Southern Ohio, we're just, everybody's having labor shortages. So Will there be enough labor to get all these uh, pumpkins, you know, picked up and stickered and binned and sized and and put on trucks and so forth? So, yeah, not really in terms of production, um, just the the heavy rain of fall events. Uh, There was some issues with some nitrogen uh, due to the heavy rains. So there were some late side dress applications for folks that were not under drip and couldn't couldn't fertigate, uh, including my own farm. I was... uh, I was putting on some side dress uh, applications of 32 uh, percent right, right, right when the vines were. I was pushing them a little bit with the uh, huh. with the knife applicator, but uh, got got it on right at the end because we had some heavy rains that I just didn't like the color. Uh, I never sent off for any tissue tests, but I just didn't like the color, so went in there with a last shot of 32 uh, percent, and that really greened them up. And then, like Nathan said, I think that. Uh, that late shot of nitrogen really pushed a lot of growth. I don't think we're going to have too much vine growth. Many times when we get too much nitrogen early season, you'll see a lot of vines. And it actually, we have seen, I don't, I don't know if there's any data out there on it, but uh, huh. we have actually seen some late fruit set or delayed fruit set when you get a bunch of vine growth. So it might've worked out good that, uh, you know, we lost some of that nitrogen, but as long as the guys got it back on, including myself, uh, seemed like it, the timing was just perfect. So now that we've got full closure of the field and it's a lot of thick vines out there now, but you get down in there, there's a lot of fruit set too. Gotcha. Uh, Brad, one of the comments you made me think of is that I've had a few observations where, um, you know, that early season nitrogen, I think too much fertility again, before fruit set, I've seen issues, but I feel like once you at least start fruit set, as long as you don't go too crazy. And even once you're a little later in um, in growth, I feel like you can push that nitrogen more, but if you don't have any fruit on those plants and you got a lot of nitrogen out there, it just seems like you can just grow a lot of vines and really they almost have it too good and they don't want to flower 
early. I don't know how your observations, but if you can get early fruit set and then hit them with some nitrogen, that that fruit load seems to help balance that growth. Yeah, I, I would agree. We've seen where they've loaded up, where farmers have loaded up way early and you just got massive amounts of vine, huh. not, not much fruit set. So, yep, I would agree. I like split applications of nitrogen. Uh, some folks put it all up front, uh, but I like to uh, I like to see a little bit. I I like to see two side dress applications, but this year, uh, um, myself and other folks, we barely got one on due to all the rains there in July. But uh, um, that's probably been the biggest thing. Just uh, let's get this crop in. Let's get it in the bins. Let's get it to the stores and let's start the season. I think we're ready to roll. Cool. Um, well, that, that brought up a question that um, that I've been wondering about. And at least a couple of weeks back, some growers were wondering about that I was talking with or um, what, um, what, now that the, now that the rows are closed, is there any value to, are there any cases where there's value to additional nutrient applications? Um, I'm assuming those might be foliar. Um, one in particular I've gotten questions about is calcium. I know a lot of, um, some of our squash growers, you know, they know of the role of calcium in fruit development and have wondered if, Foliar applications are, are helpful for um, pumpkin fruit setter quality. Um, so do you know of any, um, once you've made that side dress and you're done with that, are, are there any nutrients like calcium or, or other ones that are beneficial to apply? Or are we kind of past the period where we need to worry about fertility? Um, from my experience, again, I haven't conducted any research in this area, but as we start these fungicide programs, myself and, and most of my growers, it's just common to put in a little bit of water-soluble fertilizer, usually in the urea form, just to, it's like a little vitamin, just gives a, keep them vines healthy. Uh, I think Nate was mentioned earlier, you know, as those plants mature, maybe they are more susceptible to some of these uh, powdery mildew and so forth, but it's pretty well a standard practice with our growers just to add a little bit of foliar in with that. Uh, in terms of the calcium, um, that's to me, if you can do some calcium nitrate through drip or something, but I don't know of anybody foliar applying, uh, I don't think. One of my growers, though, I do believe was putting on some foliar calcium, claims to get a better uh, better fruit color, a darker orange when huh. he uh, when he comes in with these late season. But again, it'd be an interesting research project if we could find some, uh, possibly a Great Lakes Vegetable Working Group project. We could do it in a few states and see if we get the uh, uh, similar results. But uh, I That'd don't know, maybe, maybe Nathan knows some uh, research-based information that back that up. Yeah, I, I'll i say I'm kind of with you, Brad. I haven't done any research and I, I have done some, it varies from time to time on some of the foliar feeding products. You know, there's certainly tons of products out there and it seems like it always, in the research, whether it be that or other crops, at times it can be splitting hairs as to, you know, you know the and it's, it's hard to measure like fruit quality sometimes you get a good handle on in these projects you know what the you know those finer aspects certainly i always encourage folks to have you know to support that plant with you know all the nutrients um as far as whether say if you had foliar versus you know a soil uh calcium i still 
I still feel like the, the our root system is our, you know, the best way to be applying those nutrients. But if you have a soil that's, you know, is adequate calcium levels and good balanced growth and fertility, do you have to have a foliar product to have a, a good crop? I don't think so. Um, is there, could there be some benefits? Um, I think possibly, but I like to say, I'm with you, Brad. I don't, I don't have any good. I always like to have that side-by-side trial or something that shows that gives me a, you know, that, that recommendation, but, um, but yeah, I, I think certainly supporting fertility isn't, is, is really crucial to a high quality fruit. So I, I, but I can't, I can't put my finger on, you know, yes or no to that, especially to, to calcium or even any of the nutrients, you know, specifically, but certainly, you know, maintain that, that good, healthy plant. Got it. So it sounds like get your soil balance. Oh, go ahead, Brad. Oh, I was just going to mention one of our vegetable researchers back in the 80s, uh, Dr. Dale Crutchman. A lot of you might have known uh, Dale. He was a very well, well-renowned vegetable <laughs> specialist at Ohio State. He, uh, he was doing some foliar trials, not on pumpkins, but on cantaloupe, tomatoes, uh, several crops. And his final results after several years on multiple crops was that the uh, when you apply foliar fertilizer, um, the, the, the most fertilizer that plant uptakes is what gets drips off and goes down to the root system uh, huh. off of the leaves when you foliar apply it. So I do, if his data still is holding true, I'm sure others have done some recent research since the 80s. But uh, I still remember uh, Dr. Crutchman um, making those statements that the plant takes up uh, the most nutrients it takes up in a fuller application, what drips down on the ground and down to the root system. So um, I, I look at fuller applications as a little bit, just an extra, not part of your total you know, nutrition package, just a little bit of extra and just to, just to, you know, alleviate some of the stress that they might be going through this time of the year with a heavy fruit load and possible disease coming in and some heat events and so forth. So uh yeah, you may want to check out some of Dr. Crutchman's research, but that was some of his on some fine crops. That's that's really interesting. So on a kind of on a side to that, I have had some growers that have gone out later in the season, especially where they have larger scale equipment to make dry fertilizer applications and going in with something like ammonium sulfate or even if they can get a hold of the ammonium nitrate and doing like a low level, maybe 30 to 50 pounds of N just broadcast, you know, say even you say a week or two from now, if they're really not happy with like the leaf color. Um, and they've actually been pretty happy with that. I haven't had a chance to, again, to research that one. But in that case, I would tell guys is that later in the season, if you pull up those pumpkin vines, there's feeder roots at every node. So they're capturing nutrients from everywhere. So to go out and make a broadcast, a general application, you know, across a canopy pumpkin field, you know, you get pretty good uptake, you know, across, you know, early in the season, you think of your rows that are, you know, five, eight, even 10 feet apart, you know, how much good does it do to fertilize those row middles for that first <laughs> month or two? But um, so I, I'm curious, um, that'd be another, you know, curiosity I'd love to research and see is that, you know, later in the season, going back just over the top with, uh, you know, kind of a, a more stable dry product, if you could get some, you know, some boost or benefit there, especially if maybe not if your crop looks healthy, but if you're, say you've had those rains, like you talked about, Brad, you just, you're not happy with the color. Um, could you throw a little out and, uh, and, and get a kind of a jump start on that? Interesting guys. So it sounds like, 
And I, I know growers have heard this message before, but get your soil balanced and then and then maybe think about these other things as long as they're not cost prohibitive, you know, help nurse that plant along and and then read the crop and see what um just like you did this season, Brad, with your, your side dress and um interesting. Um well, so you guys have been on your farm and your growers' farms, been growing vines and growing pumpkins. Um, I was in the field yesterday that had some really nice big pumpkin fruit that were nice and orange. Um, and, you know, a lot can happen still between now and when, when they're out of the field. And, um, and so now that you guys have made and your growers have made all this investment, you, you want to protect it still. And so... I know that I personally learn a lot from sometimes more from mistakes. And I've seen this in my own, in my kids too. And when you, something goes wrong, you remember it. So I was going to ask you guys, instead of maybe asking what to do right, what have you seen be some common slip ups kind of in the last month or two before harvest um, that you want to be, you kind of want to avoid to keep that fruit um, and handle quality. Um, yeah, I would, I'd like to chime in just uh, probably doing a uh, drive-by scouting, especially this time of the year for the, their first powdery lesions. You almost have to get down there, look at the undersides of the leaves. If you're just driving by in the pickup truck, you know, it may look good from a distance, but, uh, you know, my feet looked good at a distance last night until I got out there and started turning the vines and looking. Then I started seeing the, uh, the small powdery spores there, so I know powdery starting to come in, but you know, take some time, get out in the field, um, look for those lesions early on. And, you know, some of our larger growers that fly on their fungicides with helicopters or, or airplanes, you know, they're, they're a little, their hands are tied when it comes to gallonage. But folks like, uh, probably like Nathan and me that are putting it on with either air blast sprayers or boom sprayers, you know, if you're able to, um, I think the research has shown that more more gallonage to get that fungicide. I was just talking to, again, Sally Miller, our pathologist, uh, yesterday. And if you can get that gallonage down and around and on the undersides of those leaves, um, that's going to be much better. But some of our large acreage growers, they just put all their fungicides on with, uh, with airplanes and helicopters. So you just, you just hope you get enough on, but you're not talking many gallons going on then, but they really don't have a choice because they can't get across the fields with, uh, with an air blast or a boom sprayer. And then Probably another thing is uh, one of my growers, I had a setting straight this week, uh, you know, watch your frat codes on these fungicides, because if you, especially on the downy mildew fungicides and the powdery, you know, if you, if you spray, many of the labels will say, don't go more than two sequential applications, such as uh, with Arondis Opti for downy. Um, it says right on the label not to go more than two sequ sequential ap applications because you build up that resistance. So just always remember to watch your frac codes and, and try to switch those out. I, I think the research has shown, you know, two applications back to back with the same frac code is good. But always watch as you get into, you know, later, later August, early September, uh, how many sprays you put on, maybe switch out some of your frac codes. So you, you may want to check out the. Uh, Jim Zazinski and uh, Dr. Sally Miller, who both are co-workers of mine here at Ohio State, they, uh, they've been doing some really good research on, on powdery mildew. And you may want to check out, we have a, a VegNet newsletter at Ohio State. So you just type in VegNet and 
both Jim and Sally put in a good article a couple weeks back on some of the recommended powdery mildew fungicides. And you know what was been working maybe as recently as four or five years ago? Uh, four or five years ago, you know, Bravo and Rally. Tank mix the two, you're going to be good on powdery. Uh, research has shown from their research that those two uh, are really don't work anymore. So if you're, you know, watch some of the new research, we've got some genetic resistance coming on with the powdery mildew and the downy mildew. So just maybe what worked five, six years ago, maybe think about switching out, look at some of this uh, research-based uh, information from the universities and our pathologists and make your decisions accordingly. The uh, Midwest Vegetable Production Guide that we all contribute to, it's got a, it's been really updated this year in terms of our powdery mildew and downy mildew fungicide uh, options for pumpkins. So you may want to check those out as well. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brad. Sounds like on the powdery mildew front, I mean, I'd agree with you. You can have a great looking canopy, but then you part the Red Sea and Green Sea and look down in, you can find colonies, like you said, and and you got to get in front of it. Um, and then no matter what you're using, you need to get good coverage. And then mix up what you're using and use the most recent stuff that works. Yeah, I think I would echo the the gallonage. I mean, I've seen a lot of cases where growers will be using some really good fungicides, but don't, um, you know, aren't putting on nearly enough gallonage and, and aren't, you just, that can make or break you the satisfaction of your, uh, of your application. I mean, I, I tell guys somewhere between 30 to 50 gallons per acre is, is a happy zone to be in. Depends on what makes sense, especially on via ground. Um, when you have the equipment, it's, it's, it's worth it to get that, um, get that good coverage. Um, for me, I think, you know, kind of following suit with that is, you know, trying to get a good quality fruit from here on out is making sure you keep that powdery mildew off, um, especially off those, the, the stems. I mean, if you get to the point that you're getting on the, the handles of the stems, you've got it everywhere. Usually that's one of the later parts, but yeah, you know, it can look good now and you can see some powdery mildew, but if you're going to be pulling, you know, probably doing harvest and still pulling fruit into September, you know, are you going to have those stems just completely covered with powdery mildew if you, you know, if you kind of drop the ball and, and don't keep up with it and, and stay ahead of it, like you said, Ben? Well, yeah, that's interesting. I, huh. I was seeing powdery mildew on handles yesterday and just thinking about how you, how do you get spray droplets down there? And it sounds like yeah. In, in my experience, Brad, if you have otherwise, um, but if you get it down, if you once have it on the handles, there's not much you're going to do or spray to reverse that. If you got to have it to that point, you know, that's uh, almost too far gone in some ways, at least when I've seen it. Um, yeah, I would agree. And the canopy's not too far behind once it's on the uh, handles. And you can have a beautiful crop, but if that canopy starts going down and we get a really hot, sunny September, end of august all that fruit's going to be exposed then you lose your color bleaches them out then you get sunburn and sun scald and so it's very important uh, canopy management is very important here for the next four to six weeks to get this crop in too got it um well i'm going to include the um a link to our midwest guide and we'll include that in the show notes and for folks who haven't tried it there's a mobile friendly website now that's really handy and we'll hunt down that VegNet article um, to showcase some of the more 
um, the newer products because there are newer ones out there. And like you say, the old standbys that you just used every year may not be doing the job. Um, so, so Brad, you kind of made a nice segue into um, kind of the next phase of things, which is um, cutting them, windrowing them, and getting them out of the field. And and maybe I could ask you kind of the same, ask you in kind of the same way. What are some common slip-ups to avoid once you're at that stage, cutting them, windrowing them, getting them in the bin? Um, well, at least for us here in Ohio, it's changed up a little bit for for many, many years, it was a common practice to cut and windrow, let them cure in the field, then come back and, uh, and load them up in the bins. Today, almost all of our commercial growers, for the most part, are just going right through the field and cutting and, and, and loading in the bins right, right then. Oh. Um, there's not a whole lot of folks. Uh, it seems like there was some in, you know, injury popping up, you'd cut and windrow and then we'd have a hot weekend and a sunny weekend. You lost your color and you got some sun scald. So for the most part, um, a lot of these pumpkins are being loaded and, and binned up right in the field. And then uh, huh. um, if, if the canopy is going down or disease is prevalent or it's uh, getting hot and dry and there is a possibility for sun scald, those, those pumpkins can be stored in a barn pretty easily um, stacked several bins high so um just probably keep that in mind you know that if, if at a certain point those crops are going to be better off in the barn and bins than they are going to be sitting in the field depending on weather and so forth so that's probably another thing just want to keep in mind I, i've i've experienced myself on my own farm you know get the kids and the get the kids home for the weekend cut the pumpkins wind roam hope we're going to bin them up the next weekend then we come back and you know we've got a lot of uh uh, sun scald on the shoulders where they were sitting in that windrow for the week. So just, uh, I think it's, it can still be a good practice, but just keep, keep, uh, keep an eye off for that. You don't lose your quality that way. That's really interesting. So there's a point where it sounds like getting them, if they've got the good color and you can keep them somewhere, then maybe you should get them out of the field when you can. Um, yeah, it might be better off to cure them up in the barn than, than out in the field. I'll say a lot of times what I've seen is, um, if, especially if weather conditions are pretty dry and you have a good crop canopy, sometimes they can almost keep better, you know, say if you don't need them immediately, keep better in the field on the vine. If you have that canopy and it's not going to be excessively wet, if you have, you know, either one or both of those things out of place, then, you know, if you have that canopy exposed where they're getting the sun, they would like you had a wind road, or if it's really wet and you're worried about bacterial spot and other, you know, fruit rot issues, if it's, especially some of those, you know, when you get, you think of those like four inch rains or other things that I would take a dry harvest season. I don't, and I, last year we were fairly lucky and had most of the season for us was, was extremely dry from about mid September through the middle of October. And that's about the best, um, best I could, you know, ask for, for that conditions, um, you know, having that dry, dry during harvest. So, um, but yeah, that's, but if you, you know, say the canopy opens up or you, you know, you're getting their, those fruit are suddenly exposed to sun where they weren't before. That's when you start to get some, some canopies. It can be a lot of work to, to harvest that first time. You know, if you have a truly good canopy, I'm, I've had times at my first harvest in which I don't go quite as early as you, early September, it'd be like a jungle. You almost kind of hate it because you really got to wade through. I've waded through leaves up to my hips or more trying to hunt for pumpkins. But I mean, you, Brad, you'd agree, you know, you get some of the best pumpkins when you have that kind of canopy and stuff, even early in September. Huh. 
Yeah, definitely. That only begin to mother fit if you do have some canopy issues. And then keep in mind, we can get a late, late season flush of cucumber beetle that can really mar up that rind on them pumpkins and start feeding on those stems. So if the vines start going down or cornfields start drying down, it just oh. seems like the, the cucumber beetles and other chewing insects like to come in and cause problems to our pumpkins. So keep that in mind too. We've we, it was years ago, but we actually had to spray windrows because we windrowed them. Then the cucumber beetles came in. So we just had to do a, a, a spray right on the windrows. So just watch for those late cucumber beetles. They can, they can cause you problems too. Huh. So it sounds like everything in farming is a balancing act and you got, it's all about different risks and you got to weigh them and then do your best and then hope that it works out. Yeah. Huh. Um, I, w- I wanted to ask you too, because you guys both market. I think you guys both um, market locally on the farm or, or nearby. Mm-hmm. Um, people have a lot of creative. So we've been talking about growing the pumpkins, keeping them healthy. Um, on the marketing front, people have a lot of creative ways to distinguish what they're doing from everyone else. Or because um, a lot of people have pumpkins, but you want to attract customers to your. To, to where you're selling them. I wonder if you could share one or two creative marketing ideas that you guys have seen um, that folks might be interested in using this fall. Maybe it's apple cider and donuts. Well, one thing one of my growers started doing, and there was a fact sheet published on this years ago. I forget what university published it, but where you take these giant pumpkins and around this stage, maybe a couple of weeks later here, you know, you can carve pictures and people's names and so forth actually my son got married on our farm last uh, last fall so cool. i had one of my growers you got to be an artist too so you have to have an artist in the family that can you know make these images but you just penetrate just the surface of that uh, of that pumpkin rind especially on these giants and then you know give you a couple 10 days two weeks for that to callus over and grow and that's been a big hit people huh. people love to see those pumpkins and have them specially made and, and so forth. So that's probably one thing. Um, huh. there, the talk is, you know, with COVID better than it was a year ago, some of our big pumpkin operations shut down last year. So as of now, everybody's planning on being full bore, full open. And, you know, we had a hard, hard enough time keeping up with pumpkin demand last year. Now, if we get all of our big farm markets that do a fall fest and agritainment to, if they're back open again, uh, it, it could be another short crop this year uh, if the demand oh. stays like it did last year. Well, that's not a bad problem. Huh. Well, that sounds interesting. It's kind of, so you talked about kind of customizing pumpkins for people with some scarring. And um, and then, yeah, maybe <laughs> keep, keep in mind what the market is like before you invest time in something like that, though, too, because you may not need to do that. Um Nathan, what about what about in your your travels around in Illinois? Um, I would I would have to kind of echo. I've done some of the scarring and stuff on fruits, and I, I inevitably never have enough time to do as much or do it when it needs to be done to get them um, get them ready and and set. But that's certainly something that's uh, unique. I haven't ever delved in the custom 
designs because I'm not that good of an artist and I feel like that could be opening up a whole nother level of work <laughs> that that unfortunately people don't usually want to quite pay for to the level that it, it takes but it is a really cool thing to do I've already taken some smaller pie-sized ones and put little jack-o'-lantern faces that people could you know kind of that people could purchase and have if they want the jack-o'-lantern face but you know want one that's going to keep um the other thing is just you know with all the specialty pumpkins um I've seen more and more you know just put together pumpkin stacks. If it's not you, maybe it's uh, someone that works for you, a spouse, whatever, put it in and just sell the whole stack. Show them, give them, give the, the consumer that idea of, hey, let's put these all together. And more times I've, when I have had a chance to do that and I actually get ahead of the customers buying them, um, you know, if you can put them up, someone's like, I'll just take that stack. Cool. So, you know, you, you kind of, for those that maybe don't have the eye to maybe self-create that or pick through the piles and make that stack, you know, just you have something all kind of pre-made and laid out for them. They're like, I'll just take that. So oh, I you know, gotcha. give, them, give them that, um, give them that kind of nudge that so they, they may like it, but they may not be the the type that would feels like they could pick it out. But if it's there and they're like, I like it just how it is. And they'll, you know, just pick the whole stack, those four or five pumpkins or whatever all together. So. Yeah, you can, Oh, go ahead, Brad. Oh, I was just going to say, another thing that's catching on that farms are doing is offering wedding packages. So huh. they offer the corn shocks, the straw bales, the whole array of pumpkins, clear down to the minis uh, that can go on for table decorations. And, and some are even getting into renting the pumpkins. So the wedding party doesn't even need to buy them. They just rent them for the weekend. Huh. Uh, wow. them into the wedding uh, venue put them out come back after the wedding's over and take them back home so huh. a couple new uh fall type marketing uh marketing things that some of our growers are doing and we're, we're actually really interesting doing the, we're doing the wedding thing uh renting that out the pumpkins out we did that it started with my son's wedding last year and then everybody else wanted them so oh. <laughs> we're continuing <laughs> with that this year cool that's really neat um yeah really cool um I was gonna, I was gonna close out, guys, with kind of a look ahead. Um, I felt like I've had questions about doing reduced tillage and and no-till, kind of really close to when, well, maybe after the time when you could do something about it. But I was thinking, like now would be a good time to. Um, we've got a little bit of time before you would sow some rye, and um, I just wondered. So, so as background, using that system where you plant a rye cover crop in fall, um, kill it in spring and plant into it, good for fruit quality. Um, but I was going to ask you guys um, maybe where you've seen benefits with that system, like certain situations or soil types, and then um, any anything growers should be thinking about this fall in terms of sowing rates or, or setting up that that right cover for next year um, um what i yeah that's a good point to start thinking about that now because a lot of our northern ohio growers that have the lighter sandier soils up by lake erie rye cover works very good for them and both for the winter squash we got a lot of butternut acorn spaghetti squash producers that are putting the that squash on on rye as well as the pumpkin growers a lot of our you know, big chains, Kroger's and uh, Myers, they, they require their growers to plant the, on a rye cover crop just to keep that pumpkin cleaner. So um, most of our large acreage growers are actually GPSing the field 
and they're leaving that little tiny strip right where that planter is going to drop. They leave that bare, so there is oh. no high cover crop there. So that's why they're GPSing and planting um, for the for the planter cool. lines up exactly in the spring with what the uh, drill went in with the uh, cover crop seed. Cool. So they're planting right into that uh, strip. So um, now our heavier soils down at our research farm, Southern Ohio, heavy clays that hold moisture. That's uh, and like on my own farm, we, we, we did no-till somewhat with some success, but uh, our farm's more conducive to uh, tillage pumpkins rather than no-till. And we do spend some time cleaning and, and prepping for market. But uh, if, you can, if you can use a cover crop, you got the soil type, that's the way to go. Huh. Interesting. Well, Nathan, what it, um, what's your perspective? Um. I would say it's fairly similar. You know, over here we've had we've had pretty good luck with a cover crop on a pretty wide range of soil types. I mean, where where my farm is at is a a heavier kind of um, a heavier well-drained soil, um, but still not not bottomland. I've seen you know guys in in the darker soils have had some issues. Our, our central Illinois soils, I. I think we've seen guys with success, but it just there's there's some differences even in how to handle it and some of the challenges that that come in those some of those darker soils that just really struggle to dry out. Uh-huh. Um, they're really high in organic matter. Um, uh-huh. You just have to. Um, it the biggest challenge is the weather, and when you just hit that, happen to hit that one big rain, that's can kind of make or break it. Some years works works better than others, but uh, you know, I think a lot of the looking ahead to you know thinking about next year, you know, you mentioned seeding rates. Um, I've seen seeding rates vary anywhere from fifty pounds per acre on up to I've seen guys do even up to like a hundred or one hundred and twenty pounds per acre of rye. Now, what some if I was going to recommend or direct someone, the biggest thing that I say first off is what can your equipment handle? And also along with what are your goals? If there's some guys that are really, you know, they want to get the most weed control they can get out of that cereal rye. And that's why they push to, you know, rates almost even to the high or even above the the range that some people would, um, you know, in our commodity crops like soybeans where we use a lot of cereal rye, um, you know, it's common that we can get a, I think, good cover and, and benefits from even having 50 or 60 pounds or somewhere between that 50 to 70 pounds per acre uh, of cereal rye. But you don't have the ultimate residue that really gives you more weed control. Um, so if you're really wanting to push that cover crop to help as a weed management tool, that's where you see guys going for, you know, for higher levels of, of residue with that higher biomass. Also, the earlier you plant it, you know, you can back off on seeding rate, you get more tillering, oh. but if it's into earlier, late November in our area, you know, going with that higher rate is going to, you know, the, the number of plants compensates for maybe the lack of tillering you would get versus huh. say, a, a late September planted uh, um, cereal rye cover. So interesting. Cool. Yeah. I never thought about that, but well, Certainly, yeah, the equipment, you know, making sure that you have equipment that can handle heavier residue if you want to go to that extent. Most most no-till equipment can fairly easily handle that, you know, that 50 to 70 pounds per acre. But when you start really pushing your biomass, it starts getting uh, just you just have to be aware of it and and think about that and how your planter can handle those the residue and cut through it. And, 
Yeah, good point. Yeah, it's not just about what you put in the ground this fall. You got to make sure you can handle it in the spring. Huh. Um, well, guys, did you have, um, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, thoughts as you... Just about got this crop in, so don't give it up yet. We've been working so hard all year to get a good pumpkin crop. So uh, the last it. six weeks or so can really, six to eight weeks, could uh, make us or break us. So got it. Stay on top of it. Yeah, I would just kind of echo the same thing. Just, uh, yeah, don't give up now. Keep that crop looking good and healthy. Um, just because you see some orange fruit doesn't mean, you know, you got it made. So keep that crop healthy for the next month, especially. So Excellent. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much, guys. I know that you are both um, busy, and so I really appreciate your time today. And, yeah, I enjoyed talking with you again. So it's been a good experience every time. It's why this is number four. Um, so thank you, guys. Um, and we really, I really hope you have a good day and a good, a good rest of your week and, and growing season. And same to everybody listening, too. Um, so, folks, you have been listening to The Vegetable Beat, um, which is put on by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, which is a group of extension educators from around the Great Lakes region, including Nathan and Brad and myself. Um, we are sponsored by the North Central um, IPM Center. And <clears throat> next week, our show is going to bring you um, a conversation with Lewis Jett of West Virginia, who's going to talk about um, winter greens production. So moving even a little bit further down the line past pumpkin harvest. Um, well, thank you again, Nathan and Brad. As always, it's a, a pleasure talking with you, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll see you in person sometime soon. Thanks Sounds good. Thank good you luck, guys everybody. as well. Yeah. Take care, everybody. Well, do you feel like royalty? I feel like a pump king. If you feel like I do, we'd like to hear about it. Please take our survey at glveg.net slash listen and go to the top of the page to share with us what you think. Make us feel good about what we've been trying to do. Uh, that'd be great. And uh, hopefully you learned something too. Okay. See you next time. Bye.